pissed us ahead. My youngin' got them bodies, she still pissed in the bed. Keep the call to silence, don't repeat what I said. Keep out of baloney, I just came for the bread. Hello and welcome to Filmwalk, this is Glenn, I'm here with Daniel. Hello! And tonight we're going to be reviewing the 1971 film from director Joseph Losey, the uh, Palme d'Or winner from the Cannes Film Festival that year, and that was The Go-Between. But first, we're going to be reviewing the new film in the Saw saga by returning director Darren Lynn Bozeman, and that's called Spiral from the Book of Saw. Jigsaw? Wait, I thought the Jigsaw killer was dead. He is. They're hours, not days. How can I catch this guy? If there's nobody on the bus, I can bus! You can't do this alone. Whoever did this has another motive. Something personal. When was the last time you saw your father? Jigsaw copycat. This is gonna go sideways fast. I'm a spam like a spiral. All available units, officer down. That was just a diversion to get us out of the precinct. Spiral, 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 spiral. I need everyone on this case. He could be anywhere. He could be anyone. We're gonna tear this city apart. I'm a that was from the trailer of Spiral from the Book of Saw, directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman, starring Chris Rock, Max Minghella, Marisol Nichols, and Samuel L. Jackson. Now, Daniel, this film is a part of a franchise that largely had completed before we started this podcast. It's uh, It started in the early 2000s uh, with, the, with the movie Saw. Uh, created by director James Wan and uh, and one other director, I believe, who has gone on to other things as well. And these films, uh, you know, they have been derided as torture porn, even on this podcast. We have described them as uh, we they've been our go to reference for films which uh, which feature the destruction of human bodies by mechanized means for no other reason than let's do this in the most elaborate and gruesome way we can. And I would say that our reactions to this content have been fairly consistent, but this is in fact the first time we've reviewed a Saw film on this podcast, isn't that right? This is a big moment for us. Yep. So uh, as a starting point, Daniel, it, would, it, would I be correct to characterize your reaction to these films as when these when the Saw tableaus are un- unveiled, when a character suddenly wakes up and they're strapped to a thing with uh, various various metal objects attached to various parts of their body and uh, the music picks up and a recording on an old-timey TV or an old-timey tape, tape cassette recorder uh, pops up and says, I would like to play a game. You just think that the gruesome, inevitable end of these scenes is just kind of gross, right? Uh, revolting. I actually liked Saw 1 because I thought it was clever. And it was a long time ago, too. So, like, I was up for those types of films a lot more when I was younger. But there was a moment, I believe, in Saw 3 where a dude is suspending in some crazy contraption and his limbs twist. And the, the protagonist is, like, trying to get him out and uh, fails and his neck snaps and his head is spinning. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm done with this concept. There's no merit to this. This is just grotesque for the sake of being grotesque. I, I will say, for movies that do not go out of their way to make their characters into real characters, to make you really care about their inner lives all that much, these movies have cared aggressively about continuity over the course of their runtime. We have Saw 1, which takes place in just a single room. We have Saw 2, which is revealed at the end. I'm going to go ahead and spoil previous Saw films here, so uh, just a quick warning there. Saw 2 uh, is revealed to have happened, I think, basically the day before, and they find the room where this uh, where the first film happened at the end of that That's film. That's correct, uh, yeah. Saw 3 and Saw 4 basically repeat that gimmick in order to draw out uh, the Jigsaw Killer. Uh, that's Tobin Bell's part. Uh, in order to draw out his demise as long as possible he is in fact dead at the end of saw four but then uh saw five and saw six happen and my I, I get a little bit fuzzier after that there was there was the one room and then there was the haunted house and then there was the other haunted house and then <laughs> saw five i think was the one where he was torturing health insurance executives for uh for our shitty healthcare system in the u.s which i have to say is one of the most conceptually interesting saw films saw six i have i, I really have no recollection of who he was messing with there uh, I have actually skipped two other. There's a jigsaw film in between, and then there was the there was the saw the final chapter, which was a flat out lie. Uh, and um, but why? <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, and the basic idea here is not only that this is the most well-planned serial killer this side of Zodiac and Ted Cruz, but this is also a, uh, a killer who has inspired copycats and disciples to follow in his footsteps and build these elaborate machines to teach people these elaborate moral lessons and then kill them. Um, the movie definitely, or the franchise definitely retreated from the whole morality of the Jigsaw Killer, where he always gives them a chance to get out. They might come out severely mutilated, but they will come out if they make the choice to make the to make the sacrifice to let off that pound of flesh. And that was one of the more conceptually interesting things of this franchise. Pretty much, they've abandoned this at this point. I did not get the feeling during any of the tableaus here that any of them could have really escaped. Like, they, they didn't really seem escapable under the rules that were established here. The purpose of these machines was to torture and kill them. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah, that, that's how I how I read it as well. I think in, in the original Saw film, like, the first film, he basically has until you just die <laughs> to figure it out. Like, it wasn't like a 30-second timer on him. Uh, there is, for I guess, for the head snapping trap, but the, he gives you the clear instructions of this is how you get out of it. And well, and Saw, and Saw 1 was basically just one of those tableaus stretched out over 90 minutes. I mean, there were elaborate little... It was a, it was an escape room setup before escape rooms were really a popular uh, pastime among us normals. Um, it was uh, it was here. You go find the key to unlock the thing, to unlock the chain, to find the clue, to, oh, it turns out you're involved, etc., etc. Um, these are not so much that. These are just sort of outside actions happening with the police and with detectives and with newspaper people trying to get to the bottom of this thing while they're occasionally getting abducted by people in pig masks and uh and stuck into a uh, into an electric uh, rig so. yeah and it's all very repetitive too like it's the same one person goes off alone they discover pig mask person or or you know decoy and then they're and then there's a towel over their face yeah, a towel over their face they're instantly captured they wake up exactly at the right time like it it's boring. <laughs> to be yeah, honest. I, I was I was curious what kind of usability testing went into some of these these test rigs because they did not seem well. It, it's it's kind of what what contributed to the lack of believability to any of these. Like they had a means of extricating themselves, but that means never really worked all that well. And I didn't really believe it as I was watching it. The other piece of it was the the tableaus, which honestly I think are the are kind of the brand proposition of this franchise here. That you go see a saw movie because you're going to see elaborate mechanized death and. I did not find the elaborate mechanized death in this $20 million budgeted, uh, you know, long after sequel to be all that interesting. It really had a feel of like, let's get all the props out of the Twisted Pictures warehouse and dust them off. Uh, you know, put some fresh blood on them and yeah. strap them onto people. There's a close-up early in this film where we see a set of barbed wire handcuffs on the wrists of a cop who's about to get obliterated by a train. Um, there's very little doubt that that's how that scene is going to end as it's happening. But the cuffs were pretty obviously made of rubber. And for that, for it to, and again, I'm not going to say that I got you, movie, for messing that up. That's that's not that's not a criticism that I care all that much. You're, about, you're a real barbed wire guy, right? Like you 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 want authentic barbed wire. You want your actors to actually bleed. I'm not going cinema sins on this this film, but when I've got a character that my only five minute interaction with him is that he's a prick of a police officer, uh, and the very first thing that I see is that he's in this fake ass little rig that's going to result in his death in under thirty seconds because films today basically don't have any patience for the sort of drawn out scenarios that were depicted in the early films. I'm just wondering why. What what was the point of watching this scene at all? Well, it's the it's your um, intro scene. It's your template, right? It's that whole, like, uh, tutorial mission, you know, in a video game. That's, that's what that scene was. Well, and our protagonist this time around is Chris Rock. So what do we uh, what do we think of Chris Rock as a... Chris Rock joined this franchise clearly as a fan of the franchise. He was a, he was an executive producer on this film. Uh, he wrote a, uh, he basically did a script punch-up on uh, on an existing script for this film, is my understanding. Um, so he has a, he's an uncredited writer on this film as well. Um, and, and also there was clearly a bit of monologuing and or stand-up or improv going on with his dialogue in this film, as, as has been the case for most of the films in Chris Rock's career. Uh, and this has worked for me in the past. This has worked for me really well in the past. Uh, he made a film called Top Five, uh, which he which he directed as well as wrote and starred in. And that is a movie which is almost 100% him riffing in the context of a romantic comedy. And that movie totally worked. Um, even as Chris Rock has gotten older and his delivery is, has changed, maybe slowed up a little bit. I am still into what he has to offer comedically. I just don't think it's that good of a fit for this film, if I'm being honest. I liked what he brought to the film because he, he at least stands out in comparison to the other characters. 
Like, he feels authentic in his delivery, while everyone else is like, I'm robotic exposition time. I can accept that you liked his performance here, but did you buy him as a grizzled cop? <laughs> no, not as a grizzled <laughs> cop. I just bought him as Chris Rock. <laughs> right, exactly. I was like, oh, Chris Rock is in this film. I know what to expect. He's going to do Chris Rock things. And I'm entertained by that because I find Chris Rock entertaining. I felt like when I compare him to the police chief... Uh, I forget her name. Uh, this is Marisol Nichols as Captain Angie Garza. Angie she's Garza, the, she's that's not the right. chief, she's the captain. Angie yeah. Garza was basically just a straight up exposition bot in this film. And like all the other cops are just so one note. At least Chris Rock brought something authentic with emotion to the character. I at least kind of, even if I didn't really buy the backdrop as much for Chris Rock as a grizzled, you know, police veteran. I at least bought that Chris Rock was trying. I would say the only emotional beats that I bought from this character were when he was actually comforting the wife of a victim of one, you know, one of these cops who'd been taken out by the new Jigsaw killer. I was like, okay, I bought that moment there. That's uh, That felt genuine. And also moments between him and his on-screen father, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, we see very little interaction between those two, though. For being father and son, they're they're somewhat estranged. They haven't really talked in a year, despite living in the same building. <laughs> um, you know, more than just a nod and a hello back and forth kind of thing. Did Sam Jackson even get a script, you think? I, or did they I just know. say, like, look, we're just going to say things to you in, in the scene. Just react normally. Sam Jackson had a real feel of, like, I showed up to a warehouse and worked for three days on this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, Which I is fine. I, I Like, I enjoy Sam Jackson whenever he's on screen in, in, in uh, you know, in a very different but equally uh, guaranteed way as I enjoy Chris Rock whenever he's on screen. But, like, he wasn't doing anything specific here. Yeah, I, I separate Chris Rock's performance versus Sam Jackson in this film in that I bought that Chris Rock was trying. <laughs> and right. I did not... And, and, I, and I'm not going to say, like, trying and fail. Just, like, he was trying to do something w- with the character. Uh, yeah, it, I'm, I'm actually going to go gonna go there. Uh, he was trying to be a real police, grizzled police detective character, and he failed. Uh, I've seen Chris Rock play a cop before. He was in the movie Lethal Weapon 4. And uh, in that film, he was the young hotshot with the psychology degree, who was sort of the new breed of cop. You know, as the, as the old boomers are out there torturing civilians for information, um, he's the one who is uh, trying to get inside the heads of the criminals. And I can't really tell you much about what he was doing in that film, because that film was 22 years ago, and I don't think I've seen it since it came out. But uh, I, I would not say that his police performance has matured along with the actor himself. I just don't think there was much here. There was a whole lot of him screaming at his fellow cops about how he can't trust them. Yeah. And, uh, and, and gradually, painstakingly, it is revealed why that is the case. But I didn't think any of that worked here. I thought this performance was absolutely wooden most of the time. And whenever he was trying to emote, it did not work at all. Uh, as a cop, at least. I guess that's fair. I guess I wasn't thinking that this would be Casablanca. So I, I thought for what he was trying to do, at least it was better than what the other characters were doing. I see where you're coming from. I don't, I don't wholesale disagree. I don't think like Chris Rock had a, an award-winning performance. But I, I felt like... His efforts to portray that character, I at least appreciate it because everyone else is so wooden and terrible. Yeah, I mean, we've got we've got Richard Zepieri as Detective Finch. We've got Dan uh, Petronievich as uh, Detective Boswick. Uh, we've also got Morgan David Jones as Officer Barrett. These are all kind of just generic cop cliche characters. And really, sort of the uglier they make them up to be, the more likely they are to be corrupt and uh, irredeemable anyway. So it does it like I didn't care about any of them. Oh, also Edie Inksetter as uh, Detective Krauss. There, there just wasn't a lot to them. They were there to be present and be named characters and gra- and disappear one by one. <laughs> right. You know, Glenn, I want to see a... I have a very specific Jigsaw film that I'm looking for, and we can get into that in spoilers, because I have some ideas of how they could really, like, turn around the franchise. Fair enough. What did you think of this killer as as presented here? We've got sort of some new choices of iconography. We've got the uh, the, the red spiral, which is which was on the doll's cheek in sort of the previous yeah, films. And uh, the pig masks and the pig puppets and all of that. Not really into the pig stuff, to be honest. It's kind of it's kind of gross. Yeah, you know, kind of gross. I don't really understand why they use the pigs. You know, the spiral. I guess kind of makes sense in that warped philosophy that everything comes around. Uh, like karma, fine. I mean, the the pig imagery has one pretty obvious meaning here. He's looking to torture and murder corrupt cops here. Like that's, that's yeah, but that they've used that in other films though, right? Oh, that that uh, sort of the pig as generic uh, serial killer victim kind of motif. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. 
Um, yeah, because they sort of they see humans as little piggies uh, that are that are waiting to be slaughtered. Yeah, it, it's yeah. it's all pretty generic. Like I said, it has the feeling of let's dust off all the old props from the warehouse. Uh, as far as like this version of the killer, eh, like I thought it was all very very predictable. I will talk more about that when we get into spoilers here. I will say that uh, one one of the plot twists in this film did get me, but I am not giving the movie much credit for that, and I will I'll, I'll say the reason why uh, later on here. But uh, before we get into spoilers here, was there a particular tableau that you found interesting or memorable? Did any of the Saw tableaus deliver for you? When you say tableau, you're really saying like uh, vignette. Uh, sure, it's an elaborate set piece in which the purpose is to torture and murder somebody. The one that I described as Spa Day, which I believe is the second one in the film, in which a character is uh, lowered into a bathtub and has his fingers attached to some sort of electrodes. I thought that one kind of worked. It, at least it was it was different from anything we'd seen before. Uh, beyond that, they were all pretty generic. Just stuff ripping and pulling and tugging. A lot of tugging. Big, big, uh, big tugging franchise. A yeah, real, real tug job. Uh, I have to say, uh, of, of the vignettes that we saw... I thought the grossest was probably Spa Day. I didn't really understand whatever the boiling wax one was. Like, I, I didn't understand, like, how do you escape that trap? Yeah, that, that was just a straight-up murder machine. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's one final tableau in this film that I thought was at least kind of clever. That's about as close to it. But kind like, of. The, kind, what was going on? generous. What was going on plot-wise in that scene was ridiculous. So, I, like, I just mean physically it was clever. But plot-wise, I was not on board with that. And we'll talk about that in spoilers here. So shall we go ahead and get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Daniel, should anyone see this movie? No. Unless, 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 unless you're a Chris Rock completionist, then yes, you may, you should see this film. I found this movie kind of boring for most of its runtime. I think it tried to make the police procedural element of it work, but it just did not commit to any of its plot lines in any meaningful way. It didn't really know who the characters were, like, were on the inside, why they were doing what they were doing, what they knew and when they knew it. And the movie seems content to sort of parcel that out as it's revealing one twist after another, but it makes the plot kind of tedious as you're experiencing it. So, I mean, there's a plot line involving a meth head named Spees, <laughs> who I think we... We briefly see him dead on the floor in one scene, but like I, you know, there's a whole lot of talk about Spees for how little he contributes to the plot. I have to say, it was a tag tongue deaf when it came to like just the topic of pro- police brutality. Yeah, agreed. It, it just felt like some. Obviously, they probably filmed this before the George Floyd protests and all that. But yeah. still, like, come on, guys. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not as if the issue of, of unaccountable police brutality didn't exist before George Floyd, yeah. which you know, and as we record this, Derek Chauvin has been convicted of his murder. So we, we, you know, we're not we're not just talking about one more name of a murdered black person who has not faced any sort of justice here. So there's there's at least some hope on the horizon there. What I think what, what this movie most clearly reminds me of within the Saw franchise was Saw Five, where he was punishing health insurance executives for, I, as I recall, one of the. Uh, one of the bits of entrapment in that film was one of the health insurance executives came up with a plan where he uh, somebody had a heart condition and they successfully argued that because that person's dentist had advised them that gum disease or periodontitis can increase your risk of heart disease, that made their heart condition a pre-existing condition. <laughs> and as a result, they weren't going to cover any of their, like they needed a heart transplant or everything. Like, it was diabolical and it was ridiculous even within the context of the American healthcare system because there's, there's quite a firewall between dental and health insurance. And I don't think that would have flown even in the early 2000s before pre-existing conditions ceased to be a thing. Thanks, Obama. But it, it, it at least was something where the audience could potentially get on board with, yeah, fuck these people. How dare they do these things to us? How dare they make money off the backs of our suffering? Wasn't that the film where they, they had to work together to figure out how to get out of the traps? I think there was a bit of a team element involved in there, although one of those traps straight up just killed a third of the people that were strapped to it. It was like a six gun where a shotgun would go off every time it rotated around to a particular position. So like two of them were definitely going to die no matter what. And that was kind of the first of them that was just a straight up murder machine. But that was kind of my point was the was it was trying to get the audience on board with, yeah, Jigsaw's for the people. And he's he's out there to wreck the yeah, system. He's going to right wrongs and he's going to fight for the little man. And this movie presents that concept as if that is a new idea, even within the franchise, and it presents it in a way that I agree was completely tone deaf. We don't need these 
corrupt cops to be tortured and eviscerated in some off-screen environment where where they will be lauded and treated like heroes no matter what anyway. Like, mm-hmm. this does not solve that problem. And the idea of this as deterrence for bad policing, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. It's no more of a deterrence than capital punishment is for murderers at this point. Like, the, the disconnect between the crime and the punishment is just too abstract. Nobody's going to change their behavior on the basis of this fear. No, let's be more careful. Exactly. Or they'll be like, you know, it's like they say about the Batman in uh, in the Dark Knight. You're like, oh, you're, you know, your odds are one of the Powerball are higher than meeting the bat. Like, how many how many bad cops can Jigsaw really eviscerate? You know, he's he's just one guy. <laughs> well, with the speed that he can set up those traps, uh, maybe quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, no matter how many Pelican cases he's got to haul his gear in, <laughs> some of the ones that he set up, I, I was not on board with how quickly and in some of the places that he set them up. But we'll we'll, we'll talk about well, that. Let's dig into it. Let's start. Let's do a deep dive into the uh, the vignettes, the grizzly tableau, as you talk. All right. Well. I, I'm with you on this, Daniel. Not Nobody should see this movie, and feel free to stick around for spoilers. But uh, if you care, from here on out, spoilers for Spiral from the Book of Saw. So... Christ, Daniel, let's talk about the twist, I guess. So his partner, uh, played by Max Shank, played by Max Mangel, it's not even his real name, so um, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> turns out he was the son of Chris Rock of Banks's old partner, Pete. Uh, no, rather, of, of the man that Pete killed. Um, we see a number of instances of cops just summarily executing people who are about to reveal their corruption. Uh, and or Pete just apparently- for reasons. Yeah, one guy uh, apparently, yeah, he shot, he shoots him just because he gives him the finger during a traffic stop, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't buy that a cop in front of a in front of a dash cam just shoots that guy in cold blood for giving him the finger. That guy goes to prison for murder. <laughs> like, there's no, yeah. uh, like, we, we, they don't even pretend to explain that, and I guess we're just meant to sort of smile and nod along with it, like, oh, yep, they'd get away with even that. <laughs> Maybe no, in Saw World, but. I guess maybe we're meant to believe that uh, that Captain Garza covered that up or they buried the footage. And, and, and that aspect of it, I believe, but the movie didn't bother telling that story. It didn't bother saying, like, this is a Laquan McDonald situation where they kept the footage out of the public eye and they managed to protect this person for, for a length of time here. But, like, that guy eventually went to prison for what he did. So it's a, uh, yeah, it, it's... It didn't bother telling the story of police corruption enough for me to care. It was just, we get a cop that we don't care about at all, strapped into a thing, and then we get Jigsaw, who's really Shank, talking through a, uh, talking through a puppet mm-hmm. and a voice modifier. A voice modifier that made me think it was a woman's voice, actually, incidentally. And this would not be the first female uh, Jigsaw disciple involved here. Uh, there was Amanda from the previous films as well. But that's not the case. It was Shank this whole time. So I honestly think they, they did so little to justify that that it could have been any of them, and they could have just decided this in the editing. No, like it, was it, so, it, it was so obvious that it was Shank. Like, as soon as Shank is introduced, I pointed at the screen, I said, Jigsaw. Well, I'm going to give you credit for that, uh, Daniel. I, I will grant Max Mangella has some evil-looking eyebrows, but apart from that, I did not finger him as the killer. Um, so there's cops being killed, right? And uh, Shank says some very strange lines. But I was like, they're going to use that in a flash, you know, flashback later. Uh, when he's like, your dad's the reason why I got into this. Uh, I was like, flashback <laughs> line. You're describing a fixture of this film that I found extremely condescending. There's a moment in this film where they flash back to a scene that occurred literally like under 20 Oh, I hate earlier. that. I hate that so <laughs> much. Oh, I'm so annoyed. Just to remind us of, of, a, of a line or a, of a bit of information. That we already like, just it saw. Was, it was the whole expo dump involving Banks being the son of the former chief. And in that scene, we literally see a picture of Samuel L. Jackson in a frame as the police chief. And, like, we're not going to forget who Sam Jackson is <laughs> between that and the next scene. Like, if he'd been some nobody actor, I guess maybe we could have we could have used the reminder. But it's Samuel L. Jackson. Like, we've seen him. We're watching out for him at that point. But no, it flashes back and reminds us. Whatever. Some of Chris Rock's monologues worked for me. I liked I particularly liked his line where he says you can where he talks about cops inevitably getting divorced and also beating their wives at higher rates than the general public. And committing suicide at a higher rate. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm uh but he was also like, uh, you can give a woman six hundred Tuesdays, but it won't make up for three Saturday nights. I'm like that's actually kind of profound there, Chris Rock. I'll give you that one. Yeah, it's like I wasn't a bad line, and I actually like that aspect of his character that he was he felt a little bit real. Like he was still Chris Rock, but he was bringing in like real stuff. More so than the other characters. Yeah, he was a real guy doing stand-up about cops. Yeah, right. <laughs> like 
and like I've seen that routine before. I've seen that routine. You know, every anytime there's a wisecracking genre savvy cop who is commenting on the nature of police films, and I, I I could rattle off a dozen of these. That is that's what's going on here. So I don't know. Chris Rock has always kind of done that. I like going back to the '90s. He would do movies which incorporated his stand-up routines into the dialogue, and, it, and were just meant to be like, "Oh, the character is doing that routine <laughs> it, it, just off the cuff." Like, no, you rehearsed that routine. That's a stand-up routine you're doing right now. Uh, there was also some very awkward editing and ADR in this film. There, there's a moment where they're they're looking over a photo of the Jigsaw Killer of Tobin Bell from the previous films, who is not in this movie, of course, because this is just an ins- uh, you know it's a copycat. I swear that photo was not actually in that scene. Like, we never see it in a character's hand. We just see a close-up of that photo, and then we see a very awkward ADR of somebody saying, you think this is linked to John Kramer, while the character is very obviously saying something completely different on screen. I'm just <laughs> like, are you rewriting the story in the editing room here? Like, what was supposed to happen in this scene? <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah, I guess not. And again, not again, not trying to go cinema sins here, but it added to the feeling of this being just sort of a Frankenstein of a film, where they were just telling me minimal amount of story possible. While also being kind of boring about it, so yeah, I don't know. So I also knew that Shank was kicks up when he supposedly died, but they show everybody's death. Like nobody dies off screen. Everyone gets the you know long drawn out you know murder torture scene. And I was like, well, obviously he's not dead, so obviously he's kicks off. I, I will grant what I was expecting was we would find his body and then we would see how he died because that was the rhythm the movie had established so far. We see them getting trapped and then we see the people looking for them or getting a delivery of their fingers or whatever. They arrest and interrogate the delivery people off screen as well. I'm not really sure why. <laughs> like, they obviously just hired him off Postmates or TaskRabbit yeah. or something. Yeah, like, they like, look, I pick up a package, I'm told to come here. Like, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I mean, what it kept reminding me of was this movie's trying very much to be a, like a 90s and early 2000s franchise. And I just don't, part of me not buying that one guy can set up all these elaborate mechanized traps was just there's surveillance everywhere. We're not looking at old analog monitors anymore. We're looking at everything in HD. Like all this old analog shit is not happening. And the movie never really sold that vibe. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's funny that you bring that up. Like they have the opening scene where boss is chasing, um, spies and they talk about like, uh, later the cops go and they talk to the convenience store slash gun seller cart person and like, oh, your camera's busting. And I'm like, why don't you check like 10,000 people's iPhones? They had a real like, uh, you know, early 2000s hacker kind of feel as well, where like footage is magically missing from the police station cameras as well. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, they try to create a few red herrings with uh, with login details. And I'm just like, what is this ancient mainframe system you're using here in, in uh, what is this, South Metro is the name of the city? <laughs> I didn't buy it. It was not a consistent aesthetic. It was just one that was there whenever the movie needed it to be in order to present a gap in information that it didn't want to bother explaining around. I didn't understand how some of the traps worked. I didn't understand how he was heating the wax to kill <laughs> Captain Garza. Like, but how? How are how, how are you doing that? That seems like a trap with a lot of points of failure, something that needs to be monitored in real time and controlled with a joystick or something. Like, you know, the, the wax is dribbling out of there and it's melting her face. And like... I, Interestingly, she's wearing a thing over her face, which I'm not sure why that was there, except to maybe make it so they could shoot with a stand-in instead of with Marisol Nichols, like, to protect her face from the hot wax? Why? Like, you're supposed to injure the person's eyeballs here. Like, And also, she was meant to sever her own spinal cord in order to escape from there, which is which does not strike me as a means of escaping alive. It strikes me as a, as a means of probably just killing yourself. Yeah, and I didn't understand, like, maybe in her flailing, she triggers the pressure play anyway and stops the trap. Okay, so here's my idea for, for the Saw franchise. This is how I would save it. So we meet Jigsaw right away. And he has just a normal life with his partner. And every day he goes to work to capture people and torture them. But the people outsmart all his traps. They break. People wake up before he gets ready for the trap. And so every day he comes home and his partner's like, how was work today, honey? And he's like, oh, I can't believe everything failed. And I I had all these great ideas. And somehow, like, they triggered the pressure plate and blah, blah, blah. And the artist suffering through his craft would be quite enjoyable to watch. Like, he never gets it right. He's like, I have the perfect trap this time. And someone's like, well, science says I can just do this. And logically kicks out of it quickly. And he's like, ah, and throws his hat down. Every scene ends with him throwing his hat down and stomping on it. 
You know, Daniel, the artist's equivalent of what the Jigsaw Killer is doing is OK Go's series of music videos. The ones where they're doing elaborate stuff on treadmills or with laser printers or with people walking around with uh, with with umbrellas of different colors and they're spelling things out. Have you ever seen any of these uh, these videos? They did one where they're in like the Vomit Comet and they're doing everything in zero G. What the hell is the they, Vomit they, Comet? Uh, the Vomit Comet is the nickname for the for the uh, uh, for basically a large padded cargo plane that NASA used to train their astronauts in zero gravity oh, okay. uh, because it could fly large large parabolic arcs from high up to high altitudes and back down again in order to simulate weightlessness for the for the astronauts. So, uh, OK Go filmed one of their videos in a uh, in one of these planes doing these uh, these sorts of arcs over and over again to film the entire uh, music video in zero g. It's and. If you're not familiar with OK Go's music videos, you can check them out on YouTube. They've been doing them for about 15 years now. They are very elaborate. They've done ones that are elaborate Rube Goldberg devices, and like they're performing a song while they're while they're doing all of these things, sort of in real time or with a lot of things happening at once. That is what uh, sort of the that's sort of what the apotheosis of the Jigsaw Impulse is. And what it reminds me of is that in order to see something perfectly executed like that, I just don't believe that it can be done off the cuff. I don't believe that it can be just sort of thrown together. Mm -hmm. And at least in the previous Saw films, like he had a haunted house and he maybe had a bunch of time to set all of this up. And then he lured people into his trap. In this one, he's like hauling the traps in and setting them (laughs) up in the field, including inside of a police station evidence locker. And I'm just like, how the fuck is he doing all this? Nobody can do all of this. I tell you. a team and a hundred people to test all of this. You couldn't do it. As someone who works in the vents, I agree. That's impossible what he's doing. You got to practice all the choreography and you've got to be able to fudge it if it doesn't work perfectly the first time. And when you're severing a spine, you only get one chance. Only one chance to sever a spine. It's a Hallmark card. Indeed. Well, Daniel, that's about all I got. This movie was a waste of time, and I'm sorry that I saw it. Well, you foisted it upon me, and I made you pay with a movie that I wanted to watch. That's true. You you said that because I had made you watch this, uh, that we're going to have to do a Victorian costume drama, and uh, I don't know if you were bluffing or not. I, was I, ne- I never that. bluff when I'm talking about Victorian costume dramas. And despite you being absolutely slammed at work, uh, I found one for you from 1971 that was available on Prime Video, and I pitched it to you, and you went ahead and watched it that very next night, so bravo, sir. Well, I, I, don't, I don't say no to Victorian or Edwardian films. That is it for Spiral from the Book of Saw. Nobody see this film. Uh, and I, I'm going to say, a lot of people will will just say you're not a fan of the Saw films, you're not a fan of the horror genre, you're not a fan of... They're true horror, when it I comes think, to me, yes. You're, at, you're right. But that's the thing. It's not true when it comes to me. It's just I need it to amount to something. I either need it to be skillfully executed, or I need it to mean something, or I need, it to, or I need to care about the characters. I don't need to sell my horror bona fides. I've picked horror films as my top film of the year enough times here. I've even picked horror films that, uh, that featured just absolutely grisly acts of violence. The platform, uh, Eloyo, was in my top 10 films for last year. So it's not as if the grisly aspect of this can't work for me. It's just these films didn't really feel like they were trying and it felt like what they were doing was not all that interesting. You know, I, I believe you you sired your first child while watching uh, Saw 12, right? Uh, that was Frontiers and it was uh, during the skin peeling scene. Yes. <laughs> You're fresh encapsulated right there. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Spiral from the Book of Saw, and let's be honest, you don't, no, uh, feel free to email us at filmwalknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of the 1971 Victorian costume drama, The Go-Between. I understand you're a magician. Is that true? Well, not for really, only, you know, at school. Anyway, it was supposed to be a secret, actually. His curses are fearful. He cast a fiendish spell on two boys at school. They fell off a roof and were severely mutilated. Did they die? Oh, no. They were just a little, you know, severely mutilated. Uh, Was it difficult to arrange? I mean, to get them to fall off the roof without killing them? Well, it wasn't a killing curse, you see. There are curses and curses. It depends on the curse. How frightening. You're not going to bewitch us here, are you? Oh, no. No, I I shouldn't think so. That was from the trailer of The Go-Between, the 1971 film from director Joseph Losey, based on a screenplay by Harold Pinter, and based on the novel The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley, starring Julie Christie, Alan Bates, Margaret Layton, Edward Fox, and Dominic Gard. This film 
It is a costume drama that takes place during the Victorian era, as requested. It takes place in the year 1900 at an upstanding British country home, where the young man Leo Colston is uh, coming home from boarding school to a wealthy friend of his, Marcus Maudsley, uh, to his family, the Maudsley family home, and uh, he is spending the summer there. Um, at one point, we hear that it was 10 days, but I took that to mean 10 more days before he was scheduled to come home. So he was he was there to spend the entire summer, was the, was the feeling that I got here. He's there to take in whatever delights are possible at a uh, at an English country estate, which includes many, many tea times. Uh, Daniel, did you count the number of tea times in this film? No, but I want to say it's probably around 10. It was almost to double digits. I counted eight tea times in this movie, uh, including one which is not quite a real tea time, which we'll talk about later. But uh, in this film, uh, young Leo Colston finds himself... Uh, quite alone because his uh, his buddy Marcus Maudsley, the upstanding, uh, I guess I would call him like Draco Malfoy, but like between the two of them, Leo's the one who does the dark magic. So it's kind of like splitting him into two people. Um, Marcus Maudsley is just a little bit posh and a little bit uptight and a little bit uh, concerned about the way things ought to be. Yeah, he's he's a, he's a proper lag. He is. Occasionally they wrestle around and call each other names, and like I actually buy them as friends, so that's something too. Uh, but he gets laid up with measles, as was commonplace up until the 1960s or so. So what happened to stop it, Glenn? Uh, vaccination, Daniel. <laughs> that's never stopped anything before. Um, that was actually well into the 1970s, come to think of it, because it was a concern with the uh, with the Apollo programs as well. So until the MMR vaccine was uh, was developed, but in any case. Uh, so he's laid. So his friend is laid up with measles. So Leo is left to roam the grounds alone and befriend the various. Because there's there are no other kids at this place, so he's forced to befriend adults. Uh, so he befriends young Marcus's elder sister, uh, Lady Marion Maudsley, uh, played by Julie Christie, and uh, she would like him to pass messages to uh, her special friend Ted Burgess, who is the tenant farmer who lives on the edge of their lands uh, and uh, farms there, and with whom she is carrying on some sort of relationship. And that is basically the tension that is in place uh, in this film, is that young Leo Colston, played by uh, Dominic Gard, who, uh, and I have to say, this is an outstanding performance from this young actor who largely abandoned acting after this film and became a child psychologist. He did. He, he, he did have some other parts. But yeah, this he actually won an award. They used to do a uh, Best Newcomer Award uh, in, in the UK. So he won that award that year. Yeah, not a lot of child actors make the transition to becoming adult actors, and this guy becoming a child psychologist almost seems determined to undo some of that damage to uh, perhaps some of his fellows, so good on him for he it. He wrote children's uh, books. That's pretty cool. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he's now he's 56 years old and, and kicking. Um, the, uh, the eldest people that are still around from this film, Julie Christie is 83, a few of the other folks are in their 80s, uh, most everyone else, all the older men in this film are dead, So as is the case of a film from 50 years ago, but there you go. As they say it, as they say at the beginning of this film, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Daniel, had you heard this quote prior to this film? Yes, I have. I did not realize this film, or that quote actually comes from L.P. Hartley's novel. That yeah. is the origin of that quote. That is the origin, I've, yep. I've referred to the past as being another planet a number of times, or being another country, or versions of that before. That is a very well-known quote, and I had no idea what it was from until this mm -hmm. film. So. Yeah, I've, I've heard that quote many times. So, Daniel, uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you. Uh, how did... Did this stack up? Did it sate the uh, desire for a Victorian costume drama where everything is in its proper place? Oh, absolutely. So this movie's fantastic, largely because it sticks very closely with the, the narrative from, from the book, um, which I haven't read, but I've, I heard about, so I was aware of. Uh, what I really liked about it was all the adults are super nice to Leo the whole time. <laughs> like, absolutely. We don't have, like mean characters or or like subterfuge it's like this is just a nice rich ass family in norfolk you know england and they're all hanging out and having a great summer and leo is a middle class kid he's trying to find where he fits in he's really naive and it's a, it's a story of lost innocence and i think it works really really well like the stakes are relatively low but like i care i care about the kid playing the postman you know knowing that he has this crush on uh, Lady Marion, and uh, he also kind of looks up to Ted Burgess, who's like this, you know, macho alpha male who uh, shoots way too many animals. Yep, he does kill a lot of animals, but that's the sort of thing that happens on a, on a posh British country estate, Daniel. You knew this. I, I, I enjoyed, I so much enjoyed the cricket scene. Like, 
I love cricket, even though I don't really understand how it works. And for I mean, me, I felt the same way watching this as I did watching Vampire Baseball. Exactly. Yeah, like, <laughs> I was just about to say, like, this reminded me of the, the fun I had watching Vampire Baseball. <laughs> there was a lot of polite and orderly applause going on there. I wasn't sure which team was which. Like, there were just random batters coming up from the crowd. I don't, <laughs> I don't really understand cricket, but I have always wanted to play it. <laughs> It looked very pleasant. I mean, there was tea time happening on the field. There was a whole covered tent area for them to take their luncheon. It looked very satisfying. The estate is beautiful. The outfits Absolutely. are fantastic. I enjoy everything about the film. Even just like watching Leo running to Ted Burgess's uh, farm and just him running through the, the, this farmland, like tears in his eyes, like, you know, being the postman and all that. It was great. Like, yeah, shot shot on location and just stuff that they would not bother using the real actors for these days. They would either use stand-ins or they would straight up CGI animate it. A scene of a character running away in a distant field, shot from up in the in the country house, and obviously what they had to do was send that actor down there to run across that field for real. Mm-hmm. And uh, many times, like, yeah, and I. I, I I appreciated those details. I appreciated how real all of this felt. I appreciated all the all the ways in which this felt like a lived-in place. And uh, I'm, I'm with you. The costumes were quite lovely. I especially liked the old uh, Victorian bathing costumes they used for oh, yeah. bathing. I mean, the women disappear to a uh, to like a, a sheltered area, to ch- like inside of a little building right off the beach to change into their, their bathing costumes, which are basically just like they're fairly modest like dresses that cover the entirety of their legs. And they're trying to swim in those things. They're covering their shoulders like bring those back. Like I, I love skin as much as the next guy, but like a gal who's wearing a proper like Victorian era like swimsuit, I'm paying attention to that gal. Now, are you familiar with the bathing machines where they would roll sort of a little tent on wheels into a uh, into the sea? Because even that outfit was considered indecent to be trekking around <laughs> on the beaches. I'm not surprised. Change, I'm not they surprised. would change into that thing facing the sea, and then they would get directly into the water, and only then could you swim, you know, in the same sea as them. As long as most of them was covered by the water, that was okay. But, there, there's a scene where uh, Viscount uh, Trimingham. He meets uh, Leo, and they're exchanging names, and they're going and back, and they're going back with back and forth with the honorifics of what they call each other, and it's so polite, and Hugh is so nice, <laughs> and he has this wicked scar on his face from the Boer War, so like in South Africa, which I didn't realize was still going on during yeah, the events. Yeah, yeah, so. still going on, and I was just like, what a nice country gentleman. He doesn't have to be nice to this kid. He could easily just ignore his existence completely. But he kind of embraces him, just like every other character seems to do. The lazy narrative choice here would have been to make all of the upper crust posh British old people into mean characters who are mean to this nice young man and treat him badly because he's beneath them. And there is one character in this film who treats him badly because he's beneath them, and it is not the one that I was expecting. So I'll just say that. Uh, but yeah, Viscount Trimingham in particular, played by Edward Fox, this is a character who is the romantic rival for the main couple. Yeah. How is that guy not going to be a brute who is mean like, to everyone? Like, he's a nice guy. Like, I was kind of rooting for him. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie that just reminds me of the truth that if you're going to sell a love triangle, you have to make everybody in that love triangle lovable. We have to be able to understand why anybody would want to be with these people. And Trimmingham is a nice guy. And even as he's explaining that calling me Mr. Trimmingham is wrong because I'm a Viscount, but you can call me Hugh because I'm not fucking uptight about it. Like, that guy seems totally okay. And, he, like, at one point, Col- uh, Leo Colston goes into, I believe it's Mr. Maudsley's study. Smoking uh, room. Where- Oh, uh, smoking room. Got it. Where uh, where Trimmingham is there just reading the morning paper. And that's a perfect moment in any other film for them to say, how dare you come into this place, you little ragamuffin? No, instead, Trimmingham fucking offers him a cigar. Sit down. Let's have a cigar. Let's have a chat. Yeah. Everyone's so decent about it. It, it. Everyone's so nice. Even when he's talking about black magic and making people fall off the rooftops and get severely mutilated. They buy into, they buy into the... Uh, you know, to this kid's story, and they're they're kind of you know prodding him along, like, "Well, we hope you don't cast a spell on us." It's very nice in the way that you should treat all children nicely, and in the way that that doesn't normally occur in movies like this. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciated that. Boy, oh boy, is this kid emotionally vulnerable, and and he is taking advantage of in a way that really kind of destroys his life moving forward. Despite all the characters being very nice to Leo, and Leo having generally a very good time you know on the estate he is emotionally vulnerable and he is taken advantage of in a way that haunts him and kind of wrecks his life moving forward yeah and i think we need to get in the spoilers to find out why 
I think you're right. Um, I think that what makes the the characters in this film a bit a bit redeemable compared to sort of the sum of their actions is that it's like we said, everyone's everyone's nice to him, but also nobody is acting viciously. Nobody is trying to destroy anyone else's life. Everybody's just trying to find their own happiness. They're all trying to do what's best, you know, for themselves, but like, and they want things for themselves and they pursue those things over the course of the film. But they're not trying to treat this kid badly. They're not trying to... They're trying to get what they need out of him, which is a discreet courier to carry messages back and forth. But they don't want to be mean about it, and they don't want to They don't want to emotionally abuse him in order to make it happen. And, you know, with, with few exceptions, they treat him decently, and they treat him, uh, they treat him in a way that makes me believe that they actually care about him being okay at the end of all of this. And that's kind of what makes this story not feel, even though the sum of this is him losing his innocence, it feels less like them taking his innocence and more like this was the moment when he happened to be exposed to the grown-up world. Yep, his 13th birthday. And it was going to happen at some point. It happened to happen here. And some of these people might have regrets about that later on, but that doesn't make them bad people. And I appreciated that that level of, I guess what I would say sanctimony if it was poorly executed, but ultimately just kind of geniality was, was present throughout this story. And I, and I, it may, it gives you a nice warm feeling for a movie that has a lot of cloudy and gray and rain. Mm-hmm. So yeah, shall we go ahead and get into spoilers here? Let's do it. Let's find out the, who wins uh, our little triangle love affair. Well, this film is available on Amazon Prime Video, so if you want to check this out, I would definitely say that this movie is not the sum of its plot twists, and I don't really think it's really a twisty film, but it is definitely a movie that is a slow burn, and that that kind of, the ways in which it teases and then reveals things are ultimately very satisfying over the course of the film. So I would encourage you, check this movie out, and uh, and check it out before you, uh, before you hear all the spoilers in advance here. You know, the movie's been out 50 years, and this podcast isn't going anywhere. So uh, yeah, check it out first, and then come back and hear what we have to say. So, from here on out, spoilers for The Go-Between. So they fucking. They sure are. And wow. uh, I mean, this movie is sizzling with sexual energy for a movie in which there is one fleeting sex scene with like a bit of leg at the end um, and some moaning. And that is about it. Uh, I got to hand it to this movie for being a Victorian costume drama focused on basically the emotional life of a child but still having this kind of uh, this kind of sexy streak to it like the the affair that is happening in the background of this film feels absolutely torrid and it is happening completely off screen and we're we are basically forced to imagine what is going on here and that and and our imaginations are encouraged to run wild i was waiting to find out what those letters actually said yeah, I mean, they seemed like they were just arranging times and places for booty calls. But like we saw, the, when we get a brief glimpse at one of them, um, and it's a great, beautifully staged moment where, and th- and this is the moment where young Leo Colston finally reads one of the letters and realizes what he's been ferrying back and forth this whole time, and realize how how that interacts with his kind of childlike fairy tale version of romantic love, where obviously you got to marry the uh, the Viscount because that's who you're supposed to marry, and he's so nice to me and, and all of that, but. Um, but also, uh, you know, we see that, you know, we, we see little bits of the letters and we see that they say my darling back mm-hmm. and forth. There's some nicety happening there. It's not just, hey, you know, meet me at, meet me at Friday right. half past and and we'll, we'll get it on. It's, hey, I love you and I look forward to seeing you. <laughs> there are text messages. Yeah, this movie doesn't really work in the uh, 21st century. It sure doesn't. Of, <laughs> the go-between is not necessary. Unless it's telling the story of a text messaging service. <laughs> they send each other a naked bitmoji and, uh, <laughs> and it's on. I felt bad for Leo because Ted is trying to shield him from learning what sex is, right? He doesn't want to tell him he gets mad at him because Leo is so insistent on finding out, like, is there yeah. more than just kissing? And Leo yeah, well, has an edge to him. Like? Uh, not Leo. Uh, Ted has an edge to him, right? Ted could very easily say, this is what intercourse is. Right. And just blew that kid's mind, right? Um, but he's, he's trying to protect him. He's trying to be a good, like, kind of like a, not a big brother, but like a, just a, a good adult. I think there's more to it than that as well. And I think Alan Bates gives Ted Burgess kind of a rich inner life here because, first of all, Ted has his moments of being a bit 
uh, exploitative of, of Leo. The moment where he uh, he tells him like, you know, hey, you you know, you obviously know what's in these. Once he realizes he knows what's in the letters and he doesn't want to do it anymore. And Leo tries to be real genial about it. He's like, I can't carry these letters for you anymore because like he doesn't want to say why. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Ted finally presses him on it and is like, yeah, Marion's going to cry and she might not like you anymore. Yeah, <laughs> he's twisting a knife a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but he seems to he seems to pull back from that real quick, and he seems to recognize, a, I'm asking for something big from you, and and also I, I need to be decent to you because you're a child, and also I think there's a layer of he doesn't want to present the mechanics of sexuality in a way that trivializes them or makes them seem tawdry, because even though what he's arranging are, you know, bang sessions with his lady friend. He doesn't see them that way. He's in love with her. He mm-hmm. sees this as romantic rendezvous, and he and you just can't explain that to a kid. They're not going to understand it. Yeah, he's too like, young. Yeah, and that aspect of it—the idea of a child trying to grapple with romant with romantic love of of adults and being forced to to get those images out of order or in a disjointed way—you know, he doesn't have a, you know his father's dead, so he can't explain the mechanics of sexuality to him. But also, he's away from his parents; he's all alone, and he's trying to figure all of this out. He also has a crush on Lady Marion. Yeah, which which models it emotionally for him as well. Yeah, he's he's all twisted up. Yeah, even though she's twenty years older than him, and it's not going to happen. Like, right, I still, right. I but when you're thirteen, because he doesn't know that. When you're thirteen, like you don't think about those real world terms. You and I both crushed on Miss Rachel, the English teacher at this age. I get it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that was in high school, and that was a very respectful crush. <laughs> Indeed. I really appreciated. I mean, Dominic Gard is doing something fairly complex here for such a young actor, and I I really felt the pain that he was in over the course of this film as he's, as he's trying to make all this work, as he's trying to have adventures, but also, you know, he's being thrust into the grown-up spotlight in a way that I don't think he was ready for, so. With Marcus, his pal, you know, laying up for, like, well, it seems like a couple of weeks, you know, he has just a lot of time to himself, and all he's going to think about is these emotions that he has that he can't answer, you know, can't answer for. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he spends a lot of that time just rolling around on the grassy estate, just uh, exploring his own body. But apart from that, it's, uh, you know, what else are you going to do to pass the time at the age of 13 when you're not sure what romantic love and sexuality is? You play cricket with the boys. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I really, I appreciated what was going on with these characters quite a bit. And I think I, I almost would have liked more from Lady Marion, because I think of the of the characters whose inner lives we explore in this film, she's the one that we probably get the least dialogue from. And when she finally, I would say, emotionally abuses uh, Leo a little bit and te- tells him he's a... Uh, hold on, I'll find the exact line here. It's very British. I like it a lot. She calls him a hey penny ragamuffin <laughs> and and says, you know, you're beneath you know, you're beneath me. You're this little nothing out of nowhere and we dote on you and you you have the you have the the damn cheek to say that you're not gonna do this thing for me. And this is after she's pretended to be his friend and even flirted with him a little bit. And I, and I wouldn't say she dials it back again. I don't think she was pretending to be his friend, but she was mean to him in that she moment. She was I mean to him. She was mean to him in that moment because of the stress of having to marry the Viscount, someone that she probably respects but doesn't love, uh, and then is imminent, right? And Tank Burgess is this fantasy, this love of hers that is slipping away from her, and now her text messaging service is saying, no signal. (laughs) And she's just like, fuck, like... God damn it, I'm, I bought you a bicycle. <laughs> I'm right. so nice to you. You're nobody. I could have been a dick to you, but I wasn't because I'm not a mean person. But you're fucking me up right now, and I don't appreciate it. Yeah, it, it, it feels the same. You know, pe- these people contain multitudes. Yeah. And what they care about most is their romance continuing. And this child being the instrument of that occurring obviously complicates any relationship they're going to have with him because it makes it it adds an element of transactionality to that relationship that I don't think they I don't think they want to pursue. I think they're perfectly okay being decent to this kid who's in their midst, but they also want something from him and wanting something from a child is always going to fuck up the power dynamics a bit. So right. um I liked that. I, I also liked that it showed the consequences of that. Now what did you think of the ways in which this was revealed? Because we saw a lot of shots of an older man standing in a room with a television set from the nineteen fifties 
1950s. So we know that we're going to flash forward into what was the present day of when the novel was written of the, the 1950s um, at some point here. So what did you think of how that was revealed? And did you always have a handle on who those characters were? I figured one was Leo. I just wasn't sure who he was visiting. I thought it was fairly obvious that he was visiting Marion, but I think the movie kept it nice and loose wh- whether what the end of that story was or, or who she ended up with um, yeah. over the course of it. So it added to that tension, I think, in that way. I will say stay off the Wikipedia page for this film because if you read the character name for uh, Lady Marion, it does reveal who she ends up with. So I, I, I knew that going into those mm-hmm. those flash forwards, but what are you going to do? The movie doesn't really treat that as a high stakes reveal because it's... It's teased throughout the entire second half of this film that this is not going to end well, whatever it is. Yeah, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, at that point, it being 50 years from 1900, uh, everyone else is gone. It's just they're the only ones left at that point. Yeah. Yeah, what she asked him at the end is, uh, like, I, it made me really, really believe and see that this guy's life was completely upended by this summer in 1900 with this family. Yeah, it adds a degree of severity to these events. It adds a degree of significance to them. Like, this was the moment. This was the big moment in his life. And it's not something that Marion knew at the time was going to be such such an important moment. It's not something that Ted knew. And it's not something that Leo knew. And they were all going through this, not realizing how important it was going to be to all of their futures. And that makes these events so much more poignant in retrospect. Like, like they, they give little clues that Leo's going to be Ted's undoing, right? Like, uh, Leo uh, Leo catches the cricket ball. I think it's called a ball. I'm not sure. Um, like he, catch, he catches the ball and gets Ted out in the uh, in the cricket match. And they're like, oh, oh yes. you're the one who got him out. And, yep, and like, look, nice looking back, I was like, aha. <laughs> yeah, and Leo, in that in that scene in the, in the uh, smoking room, um, Leo almost... I would say he almost names Ted as Marion's lover to Trimmingham. And I think Trimmingham knew exactly what he was saying. Yes. <laughs> I think Trimmingham knew all about the affair and didn't particularly care about it, which is a very interesting attitude for him to take. It's either something where I think one of two things is true. Either he had no idea that this was going on and simply wouldn't hear anything about this this woman that he loved, or he knew perfectly well what was going on, but as long as his wife was willing to settle down into their marriage, he didn't really care what happened prior to their wedding day. It's the latter. <laughs> it's 100% the latter. You think so? Yeah, I, I think because they mentioned along at some point that Trimingham would not hear a, a word against his wife. I think I think you could interpret that in either way, though. Yeah, but I buy that as in, like, if you caught him in the smoking room, he'd be like, yeah, I know what she's doing. Uh, but I'm marrying a, a prominent you know, member of the aristocracy and like, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's about whether she's willing to serve in her place and her, her willingness to marry Trimingham, even though she loves Burgess demonstrates that willingness. So yeah, I, I don't know. It, it makes, it makes Trimingham into a pretty interesting character. And again, he's one that we hear very little from, but what little we hear from him between his interactions with, with Leo makes me interested in him as a character. So. And that dude has a wicked scar. Like you would think he's a villain, but he's totally just like a, I mean, for for an aristocrat, he seems like a really genial, nice guy. Well, yeah, there's a moment where where Trimingham and uh, and Mr. Maudsley are talking about whether Burgess is going to go to war or not, or whether he's going to join the army. Mm-hmm. And they, I think, the one time in which they intimate that they would like it if he goes is because he's a bit of a he's a bit of a lady killer, a ladies' man, which suggests to me again, which I guess makes me lean toward the latter interpretation. Yeah, like, they, they he's banging all the peasant on. women, but they they just want him out of the picture. But they're not going to arrange that or encourage nope. that or otherwise force the situation. And that is another thing where a lesser movie would have made that choice. They would have just you know blackmailed him into leaving or or they wouldn't have kicked him, him off the farm. They, they would have just they just would have the military impress him. Exactly, you know? and and I never got a whiff of that happening. No, Trimingham said like I tried to sell the army to him, and I think he's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave the guy a sales pitch. <laughs> yeah, and and persuading him to go it, again with no implication that he's like leaning on him to make him do it is is not bad. <laughs> like that's the same pitch that the U.S. military makes to economically depressed communities every day in this country. So fair enough. Um, yeah, even though the Boer War was just a straight-up resource grab, as I understand it, it was because they discovered diamonds and jewels in those uh, those yes, characters. They're fighting with the Dutch over control of South Africa. 
Yeah, uh, not not exactly the definition of a just war, but whatever. These empires were all gonna clash into each other and destroy each other in, within the next decade, anyway. Fun so fact: there were concentration camps in South Africa as part of Holy that war. Holy shit! So, Daniel, um, we see a very brief shot during a montage of Burgess lying collapsed on his gun, mm-hmm. and and there was blood dripping down. And I think they were clearly implying that he killed himself. Yes, right? it, it was yeah. not it was not made explicit, but that's what I seemed to be. Happening. Yeah, that, that, that's what happened. Uh, and they they again they foreshadow that scene when um, when Leo goes to the farmhouse for the first time, and Burgess is like, you know, he's cleaning his gun. He, he's in the Kurt Cobain position. He's in the Kurt Cobain? Yes, I thought the same thing. I was like, aha, <laughs> something bad's going to happen to this man. I thought it was going to be an accidental, you know, while cleaning his gun. Yeah, it blows his head off and Leo's is covered in blood and suddenly, like, the saw doll comes out and says, you want to play a game? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's very sad. And um, and the the idea that, you know, that adds to that adds a dimension of, you know, this is why this fucked everything up for Leo, because he knows, you know, this was, it was his fault. He contributed. He contributed to the situation. He made this happen in some way. Like, and it wasn't his fault. Uh, honestly, if it was anyone's fault and, and, you know, trimming him makes it clear it's never the lady's fault. But it was Marion's cavalier handling of her letter that gets caught out by her mother that ultimately was responsible for that situation. Right. But I mean, it's. It's Leo's fault in the sense that he did take Mrs. Mogsley to the to the barn. I don't think he really had a choice. He didn't really at that point. First of all, Mogsley, who was wearing a silly party hat the entire throughout the entirety <laughs> of that scene, which is just an amazing surreal dimension to what's going on yeah. there. Um, Mrs. Mogsley again is one of these characters that in a lesser film would be the mean person who is trying to destroy the situation, and I didn't get that vibe at all. First of all, I got the feeling that she knew exactly where. Uh, she knew exactly where her daughter was. She knew exactly where, mm-hmm. where Bur- you know, she was in Burgess's barn. Like, where else would she be? And forcing Leo to come along was a little fucked up, I'll grant. It wasn't necessary, but I think she was kind of, if anybody was dragging him out of his innocence, it was Mrs. Maudsley in that situation. He didn't need to come along. She made him come along. And that's, she doesn't really have to live with the consequences of that because she's obviously long dead by the time the movie's over with. Yeah, you know, it's uh, interesting, like, in that scene, uh, she's basically dragging him to the farmhouse, and she brought him along to show, like, you know, if we could have uh, him show her the way. But she knows exactly where she's going. Yeah, this was after she set up a little sting with one of the garden staff to bring the letter along to, uh, to you know, some old widow on the premises, Nanny Dobbs, Robson or whatever yeah, it was, yeah. uh, which is the lie that Marion said of who she was going to see. And she obviously could have just had a discreet little chat with Marion and said, hey, I know what you're doing. You that's not, stop. How, that's not, that's not how things are done in this time. Yeah, you need to catch him out in the uh, in the situation. So, yeah, in flagrante delicto. <sighs> yeah, I it's it's very sad and it's very poignant and i totally buy that this kind of messed both of them up and this moment of reunion between the two of them and marion is explaining things to him and this is just julie christie and age makeup at this point but it's a completely different actor play it's michael redgrave uh father of vanessa redgrave playing the older uh leo colston in that uh in that situation i definitely bought that after 50 years Neither one of them really has a grudge about it, but she can recognize the damage that was done to this man that's standing before her by these events. She's kind of trying to make it up to him here. It turns out that Ted Burgess impregnated her on that on that occasion or on one of them. Or one of them, yeah. And tripping him, great guy that he is. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's mine. (laughs) Yeah, that that is a very that's a very interesting detail because you you either you either have to presume that Marion was also sleeping with Trimium prior to their to their marriage, which is likely. It's likely, yeah. Which is likely, yes. That you know, the idea of of no premarital sex before an engagement is 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 very much a product of like nineteen fifties pop culture more than a product of reality. <laughs> like, it's it's a it's a notion that never existed. People were fucking in ditches alongside of the road during the Victorian era, just like they have been since time immemorial. But uh, you know, I'm sure I'm sure Trimmingham probably does it in a in a posh fancy four poster bed. But <laughs> nonetheless, the idea that he would just turn a blind eye to uh, to what happened during the engagement as long as as long as it all switches off before the wedding, like that's all fine. Uh, perhaps even with Burgess being dead, he maybe thought it was the decent thing to do because maybe his wife is probably pretty sad about that. Well, and if he if he denounced her as uh, you know uh, mothering a, a bastard, yeah, like she's ruined, and he gets he gets nothing out of that. So yeah, he gets nothing out of ruining her. All it does is fuck with his reputation as well. Like like looking the other way on this is the best thing for everyone involved. It's the prudent it's the prudent thing to do. 
it makes him seem both likable and wise in retrospect. And as a way of interpreting his actions in this film, that is a nice filter to uh, to settle on. So, um, yeah, that's about all I got, Daniel. This was a lovely selection, and I think we need to watch. Yeah, good call on more. this. Good call on this. Yeah. Yeah, the, pa- the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, and sometimes those things can be quite pleasant. Yeah, this is a... I, I assumed I would like it, but I was going to like it for regardless of, like... Regardless of the story, I was going to like, like, setting and costumes and all that. But this is a solid damn movie. It was really, really good. I'll go further. In the first act of this film, I expected to not care about any of this. Like, it, it took me a little while to get... It, the movie did not... It does not give you anything straight away. It just makes you sort of soak all of this up. And then before too long, you care about all these characters and you care about what's happening to them. Even though, as you say, the stakes feel very low going in, they end up being quite high and quite devastating over the course of the uh, A moment of just pure pleasure for me was when they announced the dog's name as Dry Toast. Dry Toast, <laughs> yes. That's an amazing name for a dog. <laughs> that is actually the second line in my notes here was that the dog's name is Dry Toast. That was excellent. All the little uh, the little bickering sessions between uh, Marcus and Leo were delightful as well. Some of the little yeah, you could tell they liked like, each other. They were friends. Yeah, they, their dynamic is very similar to ours, just with less advanced insults. So, right, we don't really grapple. That's true. I would lose those fights. Uh, you'd go for the knees and take me down. Yeah, I mean, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother trying to like you know you're stronger than me, so I'll just go for you know your balance. But pick apart the joints. That's how you do it. Yeah. That's a spoiler for how to defeat me right there. Yeah, just calf kicks and uh, leg kicks. I'll take you down quick. Exactly. Well, Daniel, as this is your era, any final thoughts about this film? Um, I, I'm i really glad you picked it. It was a really good call. Uh, it is delightful. Uh, it is profound. And I, I don't normally care about children in films, but I care about this one. And I, I think uh, that it, it lives up to the book. Um, and it sticks very closely to the book. They, they, they play a, around a little bit with the latter day stuff uh, in the movie. Then it's, it's depicted differently in the book. Um, but no, I, I think this earned the awards it won in uh, 1971. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it was a joy to watch. Yeah, I, I really I have to give another shout out to Dominic Gard as young Leo Colston. This is really just an outstanding performance from this young actor. And um, it's, as you say, to sell the emotional stakes of of a child's story, you really have to make me believe in the consequences of that story. And this movie not only makes those consequences explicit, but it's also sold in the young actor's performance. And I really um, it, it's it really sticks with you. Uh, in a way that I was not expecting going into it. And uh, yeah, really quite a quite a pleasure to see. It's just a simple, compact story of uh, of a, a love affair gone wrong in a way that does not feel like it's going to over the course of this. So, um, yeah, bravo. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of The Go-Between, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net. Daniel, thank you for, uh, for joining me as always. Thank you for having me. And have a good night. Do not eat my surprise having passed the Rubicon. Take a pair. Such as admiration whets Be particular in this Take a tender little hand Fringed with dainty finger rest.